2 Corinthians chapter 4. And if you are physically able, would you stand in honor of the reading of God's holy word and follow along silently as I read aloud 2 Corinthians chapter 4 in its entirety. So beginning in verse 1. This is what the word of God says. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants, for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Verse 7. But we have in this treasure, in jars of clay, to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke, we also believe and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. So last week we spent time in the first six verses of 2 Corinthians chapter 4, which spoke of the light of the gospel, the light of Christ. So when Paul says in verse 1, look at 2 Corinthians 4 verse 1, therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, that's what he's referring to. The ministry of the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, our text today begins in verse 7. So when Paul says, but we have this treasure in jars of clay, he's referring back to the treasure he had previously spoken of, right? Back to the glorious new covenant that is established in and through the finished work of Christ that we looked at last week. Now, we haven't spent a ton of time in 2 Corinthians. Our church family is going through the book of Acts. We took a little break for the Christmas season. So we haven't spent a ton of time in 2 Corinthians, so I don't know how familiar you are with it. But 2 Corinthians isn't so much a teaching letter. 
Uh, If you read through it, you'll find it's not didactic in the way that Paul writes a letter like Romans or or even 1 Corinthians. It is more biographical in nature. I'm not saying we can't learn anything from it, certainly not. But the tone and the way that Paul communicates uh, in this letter is different. He's not presenting information to study and to know and to remember. This isn't a giant cram session. But instead, he's presenting himself as an example of a life to emulate. It's more biographical, an explanation of how he and others lived, what they went through. And so he can say what he says in his first inspired letter uh, to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. So that's what we hear and we see here in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Take a look at verse 6. 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Verse 7. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. This treasure in jars of clay is what we see in verse 7. Paul is employing a metaphor and calling something to the mind of the Corinthians that would have easily come to their minds because this was something that was very common. But more than that, I want to remind you of something before we actually look at what a jar of clay is. I want to remind you that God has sought to glorify himself by allowing his power to shine through the limitations of the ordinary jars of clay in which it resides. He does that throughout the scriptures. When Paul wrote to the Corinthians, clay pots would have been unbelievably ordinary and common. So when he says in verse 7, we have this treasure in jars of clay, uh, you and I might have to try to struggle to think what might that mean or what that might, what would come to mind. But for them, immediately something would come to mind because jars of clay were very common. They broke easily and when they did, people would just chuck them and then just get another one. And they were used for everything. So like if you saw somebody carrying a jar of clay down the street, you couldn't automatically assume, oh, they're carrying blank. You would know nothing of the contents in that jar of clay because one person would be using to carry water and someone else might have used it literally as a toilet and they're carrying their excrement down the road so they can get rid of it. I mean, jars of clay were so common and the use was so widespread. Someone would use it as a trash container and another one would use it to maybe transport some precious, priceless jewelry or family heirloom from one place to another. In fact, when the Dead Sea Scrolls were found, what were they found in? Jars of clay. So people use them for very common things and they also use them for very noble things. But suffice it to say, the container was nothing special. It was very common. And I was talking to Sarah yesterday and I was thinking, what What's like the 21st century equivalent to this? What's a container that could be used for almost anything nowadays? And we came up with baskets, right? Like you can go into somebody's house and see a basket sitting there or several baskets on a shelf and there's nothing spectacular about them. There's just baskets and you don't know exactly what's sitting in them. Uh, They might contain mail that needs to be sifted through. They might contain Puzzle pieces, maybe they contain tax documents that you're organizing and keeping together because tax time's just around the corner. Maybe you're working on something artsy or crafty or whatever, and you have a hobby and you hope to spend some time on it soon. So whatever the hobby requires goes in that basket. I mean, I could go on and on and on, but the bottom line is this. There's nothing special about the basket. 
They're just baskets. And you can have a basket for anything and everything. Thank you, Joanna Gaines. What's inside the basket or container in our text today, it's really just a simple jar of clay. But what's inside can be used by God to do great things for his glory. Friends, no people, no group of people are more ordinary than the heroes of the faith that we find in the Bible. And you say, that doesn't make sense because you just used ordinary to describe heroes. And I know that may not make sense at face value, but when you look at the people that God uses throughout the scriptures, Old Testament and new alike, God uses very ordinary, very common people to do extraordinary things. Abraham was used by God to be the father of many nations. But this is the same man that feared for his life and twice lied about Sarah not being his wife, pretending that she was his sister. That is not strengthening to a marriage. Moses was the mouthpiece of God that was used to say, let my people go. But he also had an anger problem and by his own admission, couldn't speech very good. David was a man after God's own heart and an adulterer. He was the sweet psalmist of Israel and he was a murderer. We see Elijah boldly confronting hundreds of false prophets in the name of the God of Israel. And then we also see him running from his life, running for his life from Jezebel. Isaiah says he was a man of unclean lips. Peter was the leader of the 12 and openly confessed to being a sinful man, Luke chapter 5. And then he went on to prove it by repeatedly denying the Lord, cursing like the sailor that he was. On the one hand, John is the apostle of love. On the other hand, he's also a son of thunder who jealously sought to curtail the ministry of people who are not part of his group. Mark chapter 3. At one point, Jesus wasn't accepted by a Samaritan village. John goes up to Jesus with his brother James and said, Hey, do you want us to call down fire from heaven? And Jesus like, Yeah, I'm pretty sure I don't want to just incinerate the village because they didn't believe in me. So we're not going to do that. This was John, who is the disciple of love, saying, can we just maybe burn the town? I mean, that wouldn't be a bad thing. And he's just like, we probably shouldn't do that. I mean, we could go on and on and on. As you look in the proverbial hall of faith in the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, you'll see people there with very varied pasts that God used. Ordinary clay pots. Ordinary jars of clay into which God puts a great treasure. What about Paul? I would say you are impressed with Paul because you have read him and never met him. I think he's easier to read than he would have been to look at. And I want to see if I can show that to you from the scriptures. So keep your finger in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Second Corinthians chapter 10. Take a look at verse 9 and see what Paul says. He says, I do not want to appear to be frightening, with you, uh, frightening you with my letters. Now look at verse 10. For they say, meaning his, his enemies, people who are critiquing him, they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech is of no account. So do you see that? People are looking at him, they're like, he's not terribly easy on the eyes. 
Like, looking at him, he's not like this unbelievably attractive orator. And he also doesn't speak very well. Like, he doesn't have amazing, eloquent skills. Uh, Flip now over to Galatians chapter 4. Paul, according to his enemies, uh, was not a very imposing figure. He lacked good looks. He lacked charm. He lacked oratorical skills. And I want to show you something from Galatians 4 that is possibly indicating that he actually had a repulsive eye condition that would mar his appearance. So take a look at Galatians chapter 4. And look at verse 13. Paul says, You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, You did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testified to you that, if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Now, some interpreters look at this and think, well, if we look at verse 14, Paul is saying that the condition was a trial to them as they heard him teaching. So some interpreters are speculating that Paul's bodily affliction was actually maybe, maybe, we don't know, but maybe a form of eye disease, which would have been very common in Paul's day and age and is still very common in underdeveloped countries. And that he may have been referring to the Galatians' willingness to have literally exchanged their eyes for his. They're like, oh my gosh, that's so hard to look at. It's tempting. Here, take mine. Like, it's so hard to even look at. And they're saying this could be that thorn in the flesh, right, that Paul was referring to because eye disease was common in ancient times. And if Paul had an eye affliction, it could have been a condition that would have been long-standing. Maybe that's his thorn in the flesh. We don't know. Um, You know, malaria sometimes would attack the optic nerve, causing like loss of color recognition and atrophy and really make eyes look just quite frankly really rough. And so it would be difficult if I was standing before you today and there was like, pus or scabs or something over my eye. Hopefully you'd be able to focus on the word of God, but that would be rough. Maybe in Galatians 6.11, when he says, see with what large letters I'm writing to you with my own hand, we think he's doing that to emphasize. Maybe he's like, no, I'm writing them that big because I can't see anything smaller. Like, we don't know. Suffice to say, this is not a sermon about Paul's eyes. It doesn't matter. He may have had really ugly eyes. My point is this. Even the apostle Paul was just what? Jar of clay. Easily broken, not much to look at, not much to behold, but God still used him and put something in him that would be used by God for his glory. Paul had a lot going for him. He was really smart and well-learned and likely spoke multiple languages, but he likely had a great face for radio. And by himself, Paul was rather unimpressive. Like I said, we're impressed with his writings, but I don't know that if we saw Paul standing before us today, we would be like, whoa, that guy, he probably would just fit in with anyone else or maybe would have looked like a little subpar. What about Jesus himself? Right? This is the Christmas season. We're celebrating the birth of the Christ child, the birth of our Savior. Jesus entered the world through the womb of, of a virgin. That's amazing. His trip out of that womb was as normal as anyone else's. 
And no one looks great after a trip down the birth canal, right? Like, that's not everyone's greatest moment in life. Jesus wasn't glowing when he was born. He was probably pretty slippery and awkward and screaming to be put back in like all of us. So when, when, when he was born, there was nothing amazing about him. He was a, another human being with an umbilical cord that needed to be cut and with a, a mother who had just been through labor and with all the trimmings that come along with that, as many of you ladies know. I mean, we even remember what the Bible says in Isaiah 53 and verse 2. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. In fact, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteem him not. The sinless son of God, the spotless lamb of God was a big deal but not a big deal to look at. Outwardly, jar of clay. Would have blended in with anyone else. He wouldn't have stood out from a crowd. He didn't walk around with a light above his head or a halo. He would have looked like any Tom, Joe, or Harry who would have been in the group. Love you. But you're, you're probably pretty ordinary. Right? Like you're... you're you're probably pretty right around average, right? Like walking down the street, you don't, people don't, whoa, it's her. Oh, wow, it's him. You probably just fit in to a crowd like, like anyone else. You're a, you're a jar of clay. You're likely pretty ordinary, but if you're a believer, inside of you is a gift of, incalculable worth, the, the, which is the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Like, no offense. I mean, I know you look all dolled up. Some of you more than others, and I'm not going to point. But we're pretty ordinary. We're just normal people. It's not really that if you're sitting, having lunch on Fountain Square on a beautiful day, people just can tell by looking at you there's something completely different. You probably fit in with everyone else who's eating lunch on Fountain Square. But inside of you is something that is extraordinary, of incalculable worth. And that's what Paul is referring to in 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 7. So if you look at 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 7, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. The gospel is that treasure. And I've just put in your outline like three reasons why the gospel is a priceless treasure. The gospel can do things that nothing else can do. Uh, so first of all, the gospel releases people from condemnation, right? Romans 8 and verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Furthermore, the gospel frees people from the power of sin and death. Romans 8 and verse 2, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. The gospel not only frees you and not only gets rid of condemnation, but literally transforms us into the image of Christ himself. Romans 8, verse 29, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many, Brothers, there's a transformative, transformational power 
that exists within the gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 3 and verse 18. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Just a jar of clay. Right? Just a clay pot. But inside containing something of incalculable worth, if you're a believer. The power of the gospel. I think especially around Christmas, we remember that sometimes the best gifts come in the most ordinary, mundane packages, right? Like, remember when you were a kid and it was like, the bigger the better? Like, if, you're, if, you, and like if you went down to the tree, like, you're, you're kind of looking, at, especially if you have siblings, number one, you're probably doing a quick count to see how many gifts you have because that's how you roll. And then also, you're kind of, you're kind of, was that the only one? Like, you compare the size of the gifts? Like, not only do I have, but wow, I have that big box. Or wow, I have that bike. It's huge. It's awesome. There's a bow on top of it. As kids, you tend to think the bigger, the better. As you get older, you realize the best gifts usually come in smaller, ordinary, mundane boxes sometimes. We remember that around Christmas time. It's the same with us. On the outside, just a jar of clay, but inside is the most priceless treasure in the power of the gospel. So take a look again at our text today, 2 Corinthians 4, verses 7 and following. It says, We have this treasure in jars of clay. Why? To show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. So there's a reason God has given us this power. And that reason is to show that this power, is sur- this surpassing power belongs clearly to God and not to us. And so that when you look at Paul preaching with pink eye or whatever he had, right, you would say, okay, the reason that he is, being tra- that he is changing people's lives is surely not him, right? Because that guy looks kind of rough. God must be working through him. He's just a clay pot, and he's kind of a subpar clay pot. God must be working through him. God must be speaking through him. He's not even easy to listen to. God must be speaking through him. This has to be the power of God. But then Paul goes on in verse 8 to talk about another opportunity, perhaps the best opportunity that we have to show the surpassing power of God. And he says this in verse 8. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. And so there's a relationship between each. There's four pairs of words there. And it's describing what he is and what he's not. But they're also cause and effect. So there's two relationships that each of those words have, right? So he's talking about, uh, for example, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. And so afflicted is this Greek word that literally means to press in or press hard upon. It's not a spiritual word. It's not a Bible word. It's the same word that any person speaking Koine Greek would talk about what they did to grapes when trying to make wine. That this same word, they, they squeeze. So now, if you have that in mind, take a look at verse 8. We are squeezed in every way, but not what? Crushed. Right? So you see like, oh, if there's a squeezing. It's tight. It's rough. It's tense, but not crushed. So with each one of those pairs, you can see, okay, this is what they are, 
but Paul's also saying this is what they're not. Let's look at the next pair. Um, perplexed. That's this Greek word, apareo, which means to just basically not know what to do. Like to be at a loss. Not know which way to turn. Right? There were many, many times when Paul simply didn't know what to do. He didn't know where to turn or where to go next. The options seemed to be minimal, if at all, or all the options before him just seemed to be terrible. And so he says, we're, we're perplexed. We're genuinely perplexed. But then he goes on to say, we're not driven to despair. Like we're not without any, any hope. We're just confused, but we're not without options. There's not no exit strategy. We're afflicted, we're perplexed. Then he says, we're persecuted. That's pretty straightforward. We know what persecution means. Uh, Literally in the Greek, it's being made to run or to flee, to be harassed and made to to run, to have a a harassment of some sort, violence of some sort, uh, opposition of some sort that would make you want to get out of Dodge. It seems more and more that Christians seem to be chased down. And living here in the States, it looks different. We certainly don't experience persecution like they do elsewhere. It's almost laughable to say that we experience the persecution that we experience because last I checked, we all have our heads on our bodies, right? So when we're comparing persecution that happens elsewhere, it's almost hard to call it persecution here. But it is a form of persecution nonetheless. I mean, you might have a teacher in a class who knows you're a Christian and just hates Christians. You could tell that he's just not having it, that she just hates Christians. And that could be hard for you. You could tell by the comments they make. You can tell by you saying something, and you might not be saying something to preach in your class, but you've said something that reveals that you have a biblical worldview, or that something that reveals that you love God, love people, and they can just pick up on the fact that you're a Christian. They all of a sudden put you in this specific category. Uh, I met someone earlier this year who will not ever Go to Carabello Coffee because they don't like what the Carabellos stand for, meaning they don't like Christianity. They don't like their biblical worldview, and they refuse to ever darken the doors of Carabello. Which, upside for me, that's one more out of me, one more chance of me getting a seat. Downside is that they're looking at the Carabellos and saying, "We can't stand your love for Christ." To the point that if someone then walks into their place of work holding a cup that says Carabello Coffee on it. Like, she just can't help herself. She's has, oh, how could you go there? Of all the places you need to go, how could you buy coffee from there? Don't you know what they stand for? Blah, blah, blah. They hate this, they hate that, blah, 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 blah. Hatred. Elsewhere, it's not just a matter of a boycott or verbal harassment. It's literally a matter of Life and death. I've not traveled all over the world, but I've traveled enough to have gone to places and spoken with people who are rightfully concerned for their lives. Not like here we have like conspiracy theorists and the sky is falling and don't you know something's going to happen. Like, not that. I mean like legitimately concerned for their lives. They know people by name, maybe even family members who literally are out to catch them, literally are out to kill them. Not like, oh, figuratively, they're really mad. No, like, would love for them to bleed out. Like, literally out to kill them. Or a group of people want to bring them harm, even death, because of the treasure that exists within their jar of clay. 
Paul experienced this. So that's why he says, we are persecuted. Because he was. But he says, we are persecuted. But what else does he say? But not forsaken. Why? Because when you're persecuted, you can oftentimes feel, there is nobody for me. I am alone in this situation. I am it. And there might be a group of believers elsewhere that would be with me. But they're not here. And the odds are ever against me. I am alone. I am forsaken. And Paul says, oh, we are like for sure persecuted. But we are not forsaken. Then Paul says, we are struck down. This is Greek word katabalo, which means to have been thrown to the ground. Not you've fallen down. This is not I've fallen and I can't get up. This is I've been thrown down and I can't get up. Like an outside force, someone else has thrown me to the ground. Closely related to persecution, right? They've been caused to fall, literally or metaphorically speaking. Afflicted, perplexed, persecuted, struck down. Now, Here's what I'm just, do one of these terms resonate with you, either currently or at any point in your life? I'm just, I'm just curious, I don't know. Raise your hand if any one, two, three, or all four of those terms, you're like, yeah, I, I kind of get that. I, I know a little bit of what that would mean. Raise your hand if you can look back on those terms and say, yeah, I've, I've kind of been there. I think I kind of get that. Right. We, we all have experienced this to some degree or another. We all have been uh, afflicted to the point that we would literally sometimes feel a literal weightiness. Have you ever had that? Like there's something, you say there's something weighing on me. Have you ever had something weighing on you so much that your, your chest is a little tighter? Like there's a stress that you're, you're walking differently. Your shoulders are a little lower and there's nothing on your back but you're walking a little slower and you're a little more downcast and you could literally feel the weight of what is weighing on you. Metaphorically speaking, you can feel it physically. How many of you have ever experienced something like that? Right? I've experienced stuff like that. We have experienced affliction. We've experienced being perplexed. I don't know what to do. Being persecuted and feeling as if everyone is against us or being, having been struck down. But Paul had a knack for telling it like it is, right? He didn't sugarcoat it. He wasn't like, we're kind of struggling. It's a little hard. We feel like people don't like us. He's like, they're going to kill us. Do you hear me? They're going, we are being persecuted. He told it like it is, but here's what I also want to point out to you. He told it like it is, and then he told it like it's not. Right? Because he says, we're afflicted, but not crushed. We are perplexed. Like, we don't, we don't know what to do. But not driven to despair. We are persecuted. Many would love to kill us. Many of my old friends would love to kill me, he's thinking. I used to lead the persecutions. He's like, we are persecuted. But not forsaken. We are struck down. We've been struck down. But we've not been destroyed. And so while Paul doesn't sugarcoat it and he tells it like it is, he also acknowledges that because of Christ, it's not as bad as it could be because of the gospel. And so we, he, he says what he is, but then he also says, you know what, but we're not totally destroyed. And we're really confused, but we're not totally despairing. We have been struck down, but we're not 
destroyed. He's not making light of it. Do you see that? He's not making light of it, but he's not making too heavy of it. He's not like, this is my undoing. And so that's the point. Point number two, you may be struggling and suffering. I don't want to make light of that at all. The struggle is like super real. I'm sure there's a struggle in your life or an area in which you're suffering. It might even be chronic and constant. But if you're a believer, because of the gospel, it will never be as bad as it could be without the gospel. Does that make sense? It, it will, and it won't be your undoing. That's what we see. Look at 2 Corinthians 4, uh, 8 and following. We're afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Here's, here's what I'm wondering. Here's what I want you to consider. In your mind right now, I want you to think of what your biggest problem is, your, your biggest trial, the, the thing that's weighing on you. It could be something right in your own home. It could be something at work. It could be something with a friend. It could have to do with a medical diagnosis. It could have to do with something you've been hoping to happen in your life, but it just hasn't happened yet. And I want you to look at the Word of God and see the words that Paul uses to describe what he and his friends are feeling right now. What is afflicting or pressing hard upon you? In what way are you perplexed and you're confused and you don't really know, you don't know what to do? Maybe there's a way in which your faith in Christ is right now costing you more than it, it ever has before. How are you being persecuted? In what ways has life thrown you to the ground? How, do you, how are you struck down? And I want you to look at those that fill in the blank in your outline. It's pretty simple. And I want you to, even in your own mind's eye, how would you fill in those blanks? You say, I am what? Struggling. I am fearful. I am way more than concerned about the health of my spouse. I am very confused and I don't know what's going to happen because I just found out I'm being let go at the end of the first quarter of next year. Uh, I am very scared because I have a lot of school debt that I don't know how I'm going to pay off. I am very concerned that I'm going to graduate school and not know what I'm going to do with the rest of my life. I am very alone and I'm wanting to be with someone, but I just don't see any options and I'm wondering if that's ever going to happen to me. Fill in that I am legitimately, but don't put a period, observe the comma, and then find a, a but not to put after that. Tell it like it is. But then tell it like it's not. So you could say, I've got, I've got so many hard and heavy things on my mind right now. They're the things I think about as I fall asleep. And they're the first things I think about when I awake. But you know what? God is going to work. I don't know how or what he's going to do, but I do know that he's faithful. I'm weighed down, but not crushed. Maybe 2019, of which there's mere hours left to, has brought about more negativity than positivity in different areas of your life. Maybe it's been a sad year. And you're sad. And you have reasons to be sad. 
but not hopeless. There's an annual Christmas dinner that I go to with some dear, dear friends each and every year. And this year will be the first time I go without one of them because the Lord saw fit to call her home. And so I'm sad. I'm I'm misty-eyed. But she's not. This is the first Christmas her family and her children will have without her and they miss her, but not forever. They're going to see them again because they love Jesus too. And so I'm misty-eyed, but not without hope. And that could be you. Maybe Christmas is hard for you this year because it's the first one without dad or mom or a friend or a child. Maybe it's not just hard for you this year, but it's hard for you every year because you're, you're lonely. And maybe it's not just Christmas, but 51 other weeks of the year You long for friends or companionship or camaraderie or fellowship or a group to belong to. And maybe you are legitimately lonely. But not alone. You're lonely, but not alone. Because the power of the gospel is at work in your life. And you are legitimately lonely, but not alone, because you know God is close. And you say, along with the psalmist in Psalm 73, but for me, the nearness of God is my good. See, Christianity, even Christmas time, isn't about sugarcoating our trials like we're sugarcoating a gingerbread cookie or something. Tell it like it is, but then tell it like it's not. That's what Paul did. Didn't hold back from acknowledging how hard it truly was. But he followed up each of those statements with a but not statement to remind him of the goodness of God, the nearness of Christ, the hope of the gospel that was the only lasting treasure he had in that jar of clay that could be so easily broken in a skinny minute. And no person or situation could take that from him. And so fill in the blanks. Look at your outline and fill in the blanks. Even if only in your mind's eye. Tell it like it is. But then tell it like it's not. And bring it back to Jesus. Lots of times people think Christianity and Christians are all about like, like we just go skipping through the grass holding each other's hands saying, yay Jesus. And we just kind of brush aside trials and difficulties. Can I confess something to you? Nothing frustrates me more than the fake syrupy sweetness of some Christians. Does that make sense? Some of you are nodding. Okay, the rest of you might be them. I don't know. But nothing frustrates me more than that. You know, you know someone's going through a trial. They, yep, but, no, but it's good. It's really good. <laughs> like they have this fake plastic smile, this laugh that's not genuine. They just think it's like wrong or they don't want to be complaining. Everything's good. God is good. Praise the Lord. God is good all the time. All the time, God is good. We're like, bro, it's okay to say it's hard. 
Like Jesus said it was hard. He was in Gethsemane saying, Lord, is there any other way we can do this? Paul says it's hard. But even Jesus then at the end said, but you know what? Not my will, but yours be done. Even Paul said it was hard, but at the end of his statements he said, but it's not what it could be if I didn't have Christ. I'm not talking about this false, syrupy, sweet, fake, little skipping around Christmas time, yay, joy. I mean real trial mixed together with real hope. Real suffering mixed together with real truth that reminds us that it's as bad as it is. And it is bad. It is not as bad as it would be if we didn't have Christ. And looking for the but nots, right, in your life will afford you opportunities to be grateful even in the darkest and hardest times. And we'll be reminded of our need for Christ. 2 Corinthians 1 and verse 9. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. And then finally, Paul sums it up in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 uh, over in verses 11 and 12. Uh, excuse me, verse 10, beginning in verse 10, where he says, Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. He doesn't use the term, like, but not there, but something similar is implied. He's basically saying, hey, by the way, this isn't like a one-time thing, this suffering uh, for Jesus' sake. This is a constant thing. There's always suffering, always trials, always difficulties when you're associated with Jesus Christ, truly associated with him. We carry this truth, the death of Jesus, but it's not for nothing. We do this so that the life of Jesus, the power of the gospel, the light of this treasure within these these measly jars of clay can be manifested in our bodies as well. And that's our third and final point. You need to remember the opportunity that accompanies every struggle, the power of the gospel being unleashed in your life for all to see. He repeats it in verse 11. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. That's why Paul says what he says in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live, not of my own doing, but by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Do you ever look at somebody going through a trial and you say, I don't know how they do it, right? You look at someone who's going through a tragedy or a really, really weighty trial and you're looking in from the outside. I'm looking in from the outside and going, I don't know how they do it. And quite frankly, if you're honest with yourself, you also wonder if you would do so well in that situation. The reason why you look with awe And why I look with awe is that person has been given grace that you and I lack because we don't need it. Uh, Hebrews 4 and verse 16 says that God gives us grace to help in what? Times of need. And so if it's not our need, God doesn't give us the grace because we'd probably flaunt it. Like I'd walk around and be like, hey, check out my grace. I got all this grace. I could probably handle that. It's not a big deal. So I am this empty clay pot, this empty jar of clay, looking at somebody else who has received an extra measure of grace to deal with that loss, to deal with that crushing blow. And I'm seeing something in their life and saying, that can't be them. That has to be God. Uh, That's surely not Joe. That has to be God. 
He's just a clay pot. Uh, That's surely not Nicole. That has to be God. She's just a jar of clay. And so we know that God will give us that grace to help in our time of need, should we have it. But that is one of the most unbelievable opportunities for you to point to Christ. Not by skipping and being syrupy sweet and always smiling and being plasticky. It's not about Candyland. But it's about knowing that it's not as bad as it would be if we didn't have the gospel. And being able to rely upon not our clay pot, but on what's inside, which is the gospel. 2 Corinthians 6, verses 8 and following. For we are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful and yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. And so I want to explain something to you, but while I do that, I want to ask our worship team to come forward. And also, if you're, if you're helping with communion, if you would come forward at this time right now, that would, be, that would be great. You might be sitting here saying, okay, uh, get the jar of clay thing. A little insulted that you think I'm so average, but whatever, I get the jar of clay thing. Uh, but this whole treasure inside, the whole light, surpassing value, incalculable worth. I don't understand what that means. Like, I do get that I'm a jar of clay. I'm well aware of my weakness. I feel the crushing weight of the world. I know the trials that I'm going through are really, really hard, but I don't get this treasure thing you're talking about, this whole power of the gospel thing. What is that? Well, every one of us is jars of clay, We're actually not empty inside. We actually have something inside of us that we can't get rid of on our own, and it's sin. And not we're not all as bad as we could be. So I'll give you that. You're not as bad as you could be. But sin has so affected and infected and defected every part of our mind and how we view things and has made us selfish. We look to ourselves before we look to the needs of others that we have no hope of cleaning out this clay pot that we have. We, we, we can't do it. Can't reach in and clean it out. There's no, like, bottle brush we can put inside. Like, we can't do that. We can't self-improve. We can't self-help. There is no hope for us because we're sinners. And the Bible says the wages of sin is death. And so each and every one of us, Merry Christmas, are clay pots with poop inside, and the wages of sin is death, and we can't clean it out. But the good news is God, this is the good news, God sent his son, that's what we celebrate at Christmas, God sent his son into the world through the womb of a virgin, we celebrate his birthday each year at Christmas, and that he lived a perfect life that you could never live, died on the cross, which you could also do, but what happened on the cross was that he absorbed the wrath of God that was headed your Way. He absorbed the wrath of God that was coming at us because we're sinners and we deserve to be judged and we deserve death. The wages of sin is death. And because he did that, if we believe in Jesus and we say, you know what? I'm putting all my, placing all my chips on that guy. I'm believing that everything he did satisfied God. 
I'm believing that God is fully satisfied with the payment he paid and I don't have to pay it anymore. If we put, that's what faith is. Faith isn't, oh, I believe in things I can't see. There's a Christmas fairy and there's all these, that's like cute kind of, but this is not just believing in something we can't see. This is, I'm putting all my eggs in that basket. God says that if you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. And your clay pot will be cleaned out and God will make you, though your sins are scarlet, he will make you whiter than snow. And you will have the hope of the gospel living inside of that jar of clay that otherwise would never have hope. That's what we're talking about. That's the jar of clay metaphor. Nothing special about us, but inside us is that hope. And everything we go through in life, although very hard, is not as bad as it would be without Christ.